0: Okay, <laughs> Hosea chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Usiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel." in that day i will break israel's bow in the valley of jezreel gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter then the lord said to hosea call her Lo Rahaman, which means not loved for i will no longer show love to israel that i should at all forgive them yet i will show love to judah and i will save them not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord, their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ramaha, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. I think Lee deserves a round of applause for having to read that. It's like the worst possible reading ever given to anybody in this church. You did a fantastic job, Mayor. Thank you. That was not a punishment for some form of sin or anything like that. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, sorry for that. It's quite a, quite a passage, isn't it? Um, good morning. And uh, we are, as Mark said, we are going to be in this series on the Minor Prophets uh, this summer. And uh, we have a lot of interesting readings just like that one. I was thinking this week earlier, I was like, what have I gotten myself into? This sounded good on paper, but when I started getting into this, this is, this is going to be quite an adventure together. Um, My plan is to basically take them in order. There's 12 of them. We'll get through probably nine of them this summer. So for the most part, we'll go in order. And uh, if you missed last week, I just gave an introduction to the minor prophets. And if you don't know much about the prophets, what I was suggesting is consider them as guardians of the covenant. God made a covenant with his people Israel, and then he sent his prophets, and they're guardians of the covenant. So at Sinai, God... Gave covenant language to Israel. said, I, I Yahweh, I take you, Israel, to be my people, to have and hold from this day forward, for better or worse, sickness and health, right? As long as we both shall live, which in his case is forever. And the people said, we, Israel, take you, Yahweh, to be our God. We will worship you and trust you and obey you and follow your ways. And, of course, that didn't always happen. And so God sent his prophets calling the people, remember your God. Remember Yahweh. Remember the covenant, and we are, uh, my my theme of this series is getting at the heart of God, and so I want to see what is God's heart in general, what's his heart for his people specifically, and hopefully you had, those of you here last week, had some time to think about that question like, as I go about my day, Lord, what do you, what is your heart about, how do you feel about what you're seeing, How, how do you feel about what I'm observing and experiencing in my life right now, and hopefully you were able to do a bit of that. And we start with um, Hosea. I think maybe we, we kind of might as well just jump into the deep end. I mean, this is about as crazy. The, the, the prophets are crazy. They're wild. They're extreme and, and nothing more extreme than this story of Hosea that you just heard read. But I, I want to begin by just saying that the book of Hosea poses a what if question about the heart of God. And this is really the main thing I want to say today is this. What if? What if at the center of the universe is a God who is not like a watchmaker, who isn't a God who just set up this mechanical process called the universe and then lets it run and just kind of steps back and just watches it mechanically run. What if, actually, at the center of the universe is a being who is a fire of passion and love and fierce devotion? What, what if... What if actually that's what God's like? What if that's his heart towards you? How would that change how you live your life, how you feel about yourself, what you think about reality? There's a great poem I love. I've quoted it to you many times. It's uh, Denise Levertov, and she writes a poem called To Live in the Mercy of God. And she asks that question, "What, what what if God's love for the world is not like a gentle stream? What if God's love for the world is like a raging waterfall? I want to quote from it. To feel this waterfall flinging itself down onto clenched fists of rock, swiftness of plunge, hour after year after century, such passion, is it rage or joy? And then she ends this way, thus, not mild, not temperate is God's love for the world. It is a vast flood of mercy flung on resistance. And this is the question that Hosea poses. What if God's love isn't mild or temperate? What it is is this vast flood of passion and desire oftentimes flung on resistance. People who resist the constant pouring out of His grace and His love and His mercy. And so that's exactly what Hosea's book invites us to consider. What if that's true? So let's dive in. Uh, The context is, we'll call it 750 BC-ish, okay? He writes over a period of years. Uh, this is when the, Israel's divided, a civil war divided them into two kingdoms, the south and the north, and Hosea, he's living in the northern kingdom, speaking to the northern kingdom known as Israel. He will also call them Ephraim oftentimes, so you'll see quotes of Ephraim, we'll see that today. Um, on the surface, on the outside, it looks pretty good in, in Israel, okay? It's a time of relative prosperity, uh, relative success, they have a level of power, uh, but inwardly The the land is full of idolatry and injustice. The people have forgotten the covenant. And so Hosea is like this last call-out plea from God. And in a couple years, the nation of Assyria is going to come and just sweep in and just destroy them because of their unfaithfulness over centuries. And so Hosea is warning them of that and saying, return to your God before it's too late. right? So Hosea is a prophet and God has a message to Israel and oh, Hosea himself is going to be the message, right? As you read, his, his own life experience is going to be the message. I've never read Redeeming Love, I just wanna confess that up front, so sorry. I haven't watched it. I, I meant to watch it this week and I forgot to. I know there's a movie that came out recently, so some of you know the story better than I do, but there's my confession. Um, but one of the craziest experiences God has ever asked a person to go through. He comes to Hosea, his prophet, says, hey, I want to arrange a marriage for you, Hosea. Uh, Which I would think initially would sound like great news, right? Back then, parents arranged marriages, that went so-so, but like God's going to arrange a marriage for me, awesome. And he says, I'm going to uh, arrange this marriage with you and this very promiscuous woman, and, uh, you know, second count against her, her name is Gomer. And, uh, (laughs) right? And I want you to marry this person, and, um, and he does. And so um, we had a wedding last night, right? And, and I think, I imagine people felt really good about this couple coming together. Um, have you ever been to a wedding where you like, I don't feel great? <laughs> right? I mean, I bet most of us have been to it, like, I don't feel great. About what's happening here, and I and I wonder, like, where you know Hosea's wedding occurred, what town, and and what people were feeling. Here's a holy man, this prophet of God, and this woman. If anyone knows kind of her and what she's like, it'd be like, ah, oh, this doesn't this doesn't feel great. Um, but they begin this life together, uh, and then in uh, uh, let's see, in verse three, she they have their first son together, and he's named after this massacre that took place in the Valley of Jezreel. So that's sort of this ominous feeling. Uh, and then what happens, imagine this, they, I don't know what town they're living in, but as they're, as they're living their marriage, they've got a kid, and rumors start to kind of pop up. And people um, start to see, it's a small town, you see things. See, Gomer's sneaking out at night, uh, and she's being really discreet about it, but she's off, and then she'll come back. And, and then over time, she's less and less discreet. And um, people start seeing her at the local pub uh, or, or wherever. And she's hooking up with guys who are passing through town. Hosea remains loving. He remains committed to her, remains faithful to her. Uh, and then in the meantime, we find out in this passage, she, she has two more kids. And it's interesting. The language, it's not totally clear if these are Hosea's kids or not, okay? But she bears two more kids uh, named Not Loved and Not My People And so I was thinking, you know, what is it like to go to events as a family? Hi, I'm Hosea. This is my, you know, promiscuous wife, Gomer, my kids, massacre and not loved and not my people. Um, Good to see you guys. How are you guys? Good, you know. Um, But this is going on, and eventually she leaves Hosea completely. And she's doing her thing, and she's getting passed around, and over the years, she's looking more jaded. She's looking more hardened, right? You can just see it in her face. And um, she falls in with some guys who mistreat her. And then eventually what happens is she, she sells herself to some guy, becomes his, his concubine, essentially, his sex slave. And Jose's going to have to purchase her back from whatever the situation is. This is the wife of a prophet. This is happening. Okay? Everyone's seeing this. So if you would turn with me to chapter 3. I just want you to see how the story of Hosea and his wife ends. Uh, Verse 1, the Lord said to me, so all of that has taken place. It's been years this is happening. Uh, The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Verse 2, so I bought her, he has to buy his wife, for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me. Many days, for the rest of your days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. And then at the end of chapter one, he mentions these, these people who are called not my people will be called my people again, and not my loved one will be called my loved one. So he takes her back in, and they reestablish their marriage. And that's the end of Hosea's kind of experience that we get in this book, Okay? So I could give so many more details but Hosea endures this marriage that is utterly one-sided, right? All the commitment and affection is coming from him and she's doing her thing. He's betrayed, he's mistreated and it's belittling, it's shameful, it's humiliating and it's public. Right? You can't you like back in that day you can't you don't live private life. It's public and Israel is seeing this a holy man and this woman and like what are you doing, Hosea? Why did you marry her? And why are you staying with her? Why do you remain faithful to this person? You have every reason to cut and run. She has, she has mistreated you. She has shamed you. She, she is not worth what you're doing. And with that, God looks at Israel and says, Guess what? You are Gomer, and I am Hosea. And I have loved you. And I have committed myself to you. I have remained faithful to you. And you have been unfaithful to me. You've cheated on me. And again and again and again. And I want to tear you to pieces. And I'm going to make you feel that you never had it so good as when you had me. And you will come crawling back to me. And when you do, I will be there with open arms to receive you again. Okay, that's the message of Hosea. That is the experience of Hosea and what God is saying to his people. Pretty radical, yeah? Pretty wild. So, Hosea is uh, uh, it's 14 chapters, and the rest of, of the book basically spells this out how this was happening between Israel and Yahweh. And so what I want to do is I want to take some time and look at what was going on in Israel's heart, and then what was going on in Yahweh's heart, and how does that impact us today, who are his people in covenant with him today, all right? So let's actually look at, what what are we talking about? What was going on in Israel? And um, I think the line of an old song is perfect, they have been looking for love in all the wrong places, right? That's called relevancy at the pulpit. Um... (laughs) found that one today Uh, specifically what had happened go back to chapter one and chapter two they had fallen in love with the cultural idols of their day okay a specific one look at chapter two verse 13 you'll see there I will punish her her is Israel God's speaking here I will punish her for the day she burned incense to thee what does that say Yeah, the Baal, I grew up knowing it as Baals in Hebrew would be the Baals, right? This is a a Canaanite god, the Baals. Uh, Look at verse 17 again. I will remove the name of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. So I want to show you an image of this god that they had fallen in love with. Actually, it's probably a a collection of gods that goes under this name Baal. This was ancient Canaanite, an ancient Canaanite fertility god. Okay, you can see why they fell in love. handsome devil, right? Um thought to be responsible for children, for rain, for crops, for fertility, as I say, for, um, for flourishing, for abundance, for success. Really, Baal was their ticket to the good life, as far as they saw it, okay? It's what everyone around them was, was going after. So said, this is how you secure the good life. And that was him. And so, if you look at, like, go, go look at verse 5 of chapter 2. Um, this is God speaking, their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. She's thinking, these are the gods that provide all of these things for me. Uh, you look at verse 8. God says, she has not acknowledged. I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold, which they then used for Baal. He said, no, they're, they're, they're thinking... This thing provides. I'm the creator God. I'm the one who provides all these things for you. And yet you're looking to these other gods that the cultures around you are going after to provide these things for you. Let me just give you a couple, uh, get you inside of what the worship of this Baal looked like for them, okay? Hosea 4, 7. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. So they actually, they, sacri- you're gonna, we're gonna, they sacrifice a lot to worship these other gods. They, they sacrifice gold and silver and make little, right, figurines that represent these gods. But look what else they do. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills. Your daughters turn to prostitution, and your daughters-in-law to adultery. The men consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. So part of this religion, right? You're, you're wanting babies, you're wanting crops. It's a fertility religion. And so what you do is you go to the, these shrines, and you engage in what's called cultic prostitution, thinking as we engage in this behavior, this is one of the ways that we get the gods to make us fruitful, okay? So engaging in all sorts of sexual immorality is part of the worship of this God. Look at this one. They do not cry out to me, this is God speaking, from their hearts, but wail on their beds. They slash themselves appealing to their gods for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. They would actually engage in self-harming behavior. if I, They would cut themselves, thinking if we do this, this is a way to maybe you know, make the gods do the thing. It's, it's a way to manipulate the gods or to appease the gods so that they'll do what we want them to do. And then here's one more. It is said of these people, they offer human sacrifices. They kiss calf idols. The, people actually would sacrifice their children to these gods. Okay, so this was part of the ancient Near Eastern kind of religious structure. And it cost them some things. I mean, They're, they're losing things by, by going after these gods. And, and God was saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You should have no other gods but me. And they're going after the gods of the surrounding peoples. And one other thing that's happening, they're not just going after these gods, but they're just, they're just going after the worldly resources of their day instead of depending on Yahweh. And what's happening is they're making foreign alliances with the nations around them. So let me just show you uh, an example of this. Ephraim, again, that's Israel, mixes with the nations. Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt and now turning to Assyria. Okay, so what you need to know is At this time, Israel's like this little nation on the international scene. There's these massive powers around them. And so life always feels a little bit precarious for them. And they're thinking, how do we secure our borders? How do we protect ourselves? What what can give us a sense that we're, we're gonna be okay? And God had always said, guys, I am God. I'm the God of the universe. I know you're small. Trust me, I will protect you. I promise you, follow me, walk with me, worship me. I will protect you. In the internet, from, from, from these enemies. And they're like, yeah, that doesn't... <laughs> humanly speaking, that just doesn't, that doesn't work. We've got to make alliances with other nations. And the two big ones of the day were Egypt in the south and Assyria in the north. And so they're constantly trying to form alliances, going to worldly powers for their security. What they don't realize is Assyria is going to be the very thing that turns on them and destroys them in the end, okay? So they're, they're looking for love in in the the cultural idols of the day and just the worldly resources of their day. And one last thing, what's maybe even worse is in the midst of all that, they haven't actually forsaken Yahweh. It's not like they've stopped worshiping him. They're just two-timing on him. Hey, they're, they're still doing the, the Yahweh. They're still, they're still offering sacrifices to Yahweh. Um, he says this, you continue to offer sacrifices to me, but I'm not pleased with those. You build offer, altars to me, but they have become altars for sinning. You are two-timing with on me. It, it's not, it almost be easier if you just left altogether, but you come and you sleep with me and you're with me and you do your thing and that works for a while. And then you go off and you're, you're trying to have all this, all this together and it just kills me. He always says, "Look at what he says to his people. Um, your love is like the morning mist, right? You're, it's not that you've you've left altogether. It's like you're here for a bit and then you're gone early, like the early dew that disappears." We I, we sing that song, "Prone to Wander," right? I feel I'm so prone to leave the God I love, and God's saying that to Israel. Gosh, you you say you love me, and then the next minute you're here. You are off doing these things. Uh, look at this one, chapter thirteen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I cared for you in the wilderness. When I fed you, you were satisfied. When you were satisfied, you became proud. Then you forgot me. Anyone relate to ever doing something like that? Right, like you got what you wanted from me, and then you forgot me. You thought I'm good. And you, you're, it's this, you're doing a both and thing. So this is what was going on in Israel. And so I want to I just, before we, we, we go on to look at what, what's in God's heart, um, I mean, gosh, th- their example is a gut check for us, is it not? When we think about what was going on there. Um, looking to the cultural idols of the day, looking to the worldly resources of the day for trust, security, perfection, devotion, rather than Yahweh. And so, uh, now I'm going to show you an image you saw earlier. We'll give you a little. Um, so, this is low-hanging fruit to, I was thinking, what are some of the cultural idols, right? If, if their cultural idols were the Baals, uh, were Egypt and Assyria, what are the cultural idols of our local situation, which is Orange County, California, 2023, okay? Um, again, low-hanging fruit. These represent a collection of things um, that maybe aren't on here, whether it's this image of a perfect family or or this just beauty, or work, or drink, or substance, or our little pocket idols that we uh, we worship every day, uh, or these wonderful homes, or if that home is totally out of your realm, then maybe that represents the vacation experience that you're longing for. You know, um, those screens we watch, and I just had to put one on. I just had to be real about myself. You know, what what are what are the potential um, uh, passions and obsessions that captivate our hearts? Okay, and again, this is. Low hanging fruit, representative of so many other things. Uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with any one of these things, I think we'd say. Nothing inherently. In fact, these can be good things. But I want you to just pause for a second and, and ask yourself some just very straightforward questions, such as when you think about the future, and this is, this is exactly what Israel was wrestling, wrestling with when you think about the future, what is some, what, is, what are the things that give you a sense of security? What makes you not feel anxious about the next 10 to 20 years of your life? Uh, is it, well, I, I know I've got, there's enough money stashed away that we can, I see that we're going to be okay, right? Or, or my health is, is as it is that I, I, feel, I feel good about the next 10, 20 years. Like when you're honest, like what gives me a sense of... The future's okay. Is it things like that? Or is it because I have Yahweh and he told me I will never leave you or forsake you? What is it in my heart? Is it both? Um, How about this? When I'm anxious, when I'm stressed, when I'm actually anxious, when I'm actually stressed, what do I actually go to to relieve my anxiety? Do I go to a drink? Do I go to my little pocket God and just start distracting myself? Um, Do I start making purchases online or do I go somewhere and just start buying things? Like what, What do I actually do when I'm anxious and stressed or do I go to my God and do I invite him into that? Lord, I need you to help me trust you right now. What do I actually look to uh, first sense of identity and significance in this culture that I live in? Like, what, what's that thing that, that gives me a sense of, I'm, I'm legit, <laughs> is do I go to my accomplishments? Um, do I go to beauty? Do I go to my physical appearance? Do I, do I go to the praises of others? Or do I go to Yahweh? I'm his daughter, I'm his son. I'm his child, he loves me. What comes up for you? Like what are, the, what are the actual things that our hearts cling to in those actual moments of our day? And what I was thinking this week, just as with ancient Israel, we, we love these gods, but we sacrifice a lot for these gods, okay? It costs us to follow these gods. I was thinking, you know, we're not sacrificing our kids on altars to foreign gods, but we know all the stories of people who sacrifice their kids to their work, right? There's pastors who sacrifice their kids on the altar of ministry. Um, We will often sacrifice our freedom in order to maintain a certain standard of living. It's a big sacrifice. I was thinking of their their self-harming behavior. They're slashing themselves. But we actually cut our bodies. We put things in our bodies and sacrifice them to this God of beauty and eternal youth. We do this. Right? These are costs <laughs> that we, we give to these, these gods. And these phones, we sacrifice presence and attention and unhurriedness for distracted compulsivity. So these these things cost us. But I just want to be clear that the, um, the danger, as with Israel, is not that we have utterly forsaken God, right? Um, the danger is that we're two-timing on him. That, that's the danger, that he's... The danger is God's, he's still a part of our lives, right? We're still doing church, we're still in our groups, we're maybe in his word, we are even giving. We're, you know, there, that's, that's still a structure, a part of our system. The danger is we look at God God, and say, God, you, you bring great meaning to my life. You are a huge value add to my life. And God says, yeah, I don't want to be a value add to your life. That's not how this works. That's not covenant. I want to be your all in all. I want to be your, your everything we're in covenant together. I want your heart, I want your soul, I want your body, I want the whole thing. And I was thinking, I've been, you know, this as we're talking about covenant, I'm thinking about these marriage vows that I've quoted both weeks. And this week I was thinking there's a little in the traditional vows, right at the end there's this little line that says this, and forsaking all others, right? to hold and cherish Told that through his part. For, it's that phrase that really caught me this week, forsaking all others. And I was thinking, that's what marriage is. Like before you get married, uh, I'll just speak for myself, before I got married, um, there were thousands of women around, <laughs> none of whom would have been interested in me, but all of whom in my imagination held the potential of for something, right? (laughs) Maybe two or three of those, that could have worked, you know. But um, there's there's an unlimited, vague world uh, that that is held in your imagination as a possibility for you, right? (laughs) Even though they may not have been possibilities, but you think they are. And when you get married, there's this drastic limiting to one in your imagination, in your possibilities, and there is a forsaking of all others. There's a radical reorientation of every other relationship with women or, or with men, depending on who you are. And there's this narrowing, this drastic mar- narrowing on one. And it's not that those relationships end, right? Those relationships continue, but they're carried in a completely different way they're held in such a different way. And this is what Yahweh was asking of his people. I want you to forsake all of these other things. Of course you continue to interact with them. This is part of life. But they hold a very different place in your heart and your mind and your affections and your devotions. And so this Hosea begs the question, what does it look like to forsake all others? In, a, in the midst of a world where you have to interact with all others. And we all have to figure that out. First, you know, there's not a, a, a three-stepper on that. But this is what was going on in Israel. This is always the challenge for the human heart, for the, the covenant people of God, which is what we are if we've given our, ourselves to Jesus Christ. So I wanna turn now and kind of land the plane by just, without solving that problem for us, that's we, we kind of got at the heart of Israel what was going on. I just want to turn and just briefly, just want again to get at the heart of God and just have us experience the heart of God for His covenant people today. And as you read, I, I read the, you know the whole thing and this, I'm realizing I've, I've given myself a lot of work. I'm gonna like you know I gotta take 14 chapters and put it into 35 minutes. You know, but um, as I read the whole book this week, there, in terms of the heart of God, there's two. There's two qualities of God that are warring in Hosea. I want you just to see them for yourself. I'll just explain them to you. The first is what I would call the jealous love of God for his people. Covenant, Exodus, God describes himself this way. Do not worship any other God. Why? For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Okay, and you might hear that word jealous. and You're like, that sounds like a really bad thing. We think of jealousy and like envy and like I'm insecure and you have something I want and in human relationship that feels bad. But think of the word zealous. God says, I am zealous for you. I am zealous for your heart and your devotion. I don't want to share you, right, with any other God. Uh, And when that happens, I get angry. I get hurt. I get upset Uh, I feel betrayed. And sometimes I feel like I don't know what I might do with all of that. (laughs) Okay? So there's a lot of God's jealous love in Hosea. But that, you have to pair that with another side of God's love, which is his unconditional love. which shows up a lot in Hosea. We see it in so many of the Psalms. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, right? His love endures forever. This sticky, steadfast love. It's the love of a spouse saying, I said for better, for worse, and I meant it, and you can't get rid of me even if you try. I'm in this till death do us part. And what's so wild, if you were to read this on your own, the, the, the last like 10 chapters are just this constant interplay between God's jealous love and his, his uh, unconditional love. And and there's like almost no structure. Hosea feels very schizophrenic. Okay, it's like wh- one moment God is like about to kill them and the next he's like, I love you. And anyone who's ever been betrayed in a relationship, whether it's a marriage or, or a dating relationship, you know what it feels like to have those things war in you. Where you're like, I want to kill you, <laughs> and I just want you back for myself, right? This, this is how this works. In Hosea, it's like, it's almost schizophrenic, the way that God is, his passions are going back and forth between these two things. Let me just show you one place where that happens. Uh, listen to this, here's his jealous love. He's like, I'm gonna, you're, you're gonna feel my anger. Uh, a sword will flash in their cities. It'll devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most High, I will by no means exalt them. Very next sentence, uh, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over Is my heart is changed within me? All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fear, saying, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. And then very next verse. It's interesting, there's a, a, the, God is the, as a lion shows up a lot in Hosea. And you think about, look at, I'll show you two places. I'm gonna be like a lion to Ephraim. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will turn to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face, right? I'm gonna tear you apart. You understand this anger, fierce love. But other times that image is used in this beautiful way. Then they will follow the Lord, and he will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt. They will come back into the land, trembling like sparrows from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. I can tear you apart, but I can also defend you and protect you. It's like Aslan, right? He's not safe, (laughs) but he's good. And so you've got, Hosea, this picture of a God who wears his heart on his sleeve, truly. He's passionate about his people. And honestly, it's almost embarrassing. It's kind of like you're watching Hosea, you're like, what are you doing with this person? Why are you staying with this person? And that's like almost how you feel about God in Hosea. Like, you're the holy God of the universe. You don't need to, you don't need to put up with this. And yet he cares. And he keeps pursuing his people. And so I want to I just leave you with where I started, with that simple what if question. Like what if, what if God has this kind of jealous and unconditional love for us? Like what if that's really actually true? What if, what if not mild, not temperate is God's love for us? What if it's a vast flood of fierce mercy flowing on us? And so I, I want to just, again, kind of leave you where I left you last week by asking yourself, what is my picture of God? And I was, as I was thinking about my experience of us as a community and what I think how people actually imagine God, like what is, what is God's posture towards you in general? The way I would sum up what I've experienced over the years is the average person when they think about God's posture towards them, they would say, When I picture God, I picture this being who is distantly disappointed in me. Right, just kind of, he's distantly disappointed in me. And so what I try, I try to be, I try to do good things. I try to avoid bad things. And I try to, you know, do the things that I think would, would make him less disappointed. And Hosea says, what if God is something entirely different than that? What if God looks at that attempt at like avoid bad behavior and do good behavior? He's like, yeah, that's not even close. <laughs> that's not even close to reality. I, that, that's, that's, not, that's not even close to enough. <laughs> like I don't I don't just want your avoidance of bad behavior and your good behavior. Like I want something a lot. I want you. I want your heart. I want your soul. <laughs> I want it all. I care deeply. I'm not distantly disappointed in you. I am passionately interested in you I love you I do not want you to cheat on me I deserve your all but I will continue to pursue you I will never stop pursuing you hunting you down loving you, disciplining you forgiving you because we're in covenant together for better or for worse till death do us part What if God is that way? It's kind of scary. (laughs) But take it as a compliment. (laughs) Really, like take it as a compliment. Like we matter to him. His people matter to him. And this is reality. This is how God communicates himself in the Bible. So let me just pray for us. I want you to sit with that this week and then we're gonna come to the table and engage God here at these tables. Father, as we, I'll just confess, as I as I see images like this of a love that is fierce and passionate and intimate, I there's a big part of me just I I don't actually believe it. I, I kind of don't believe it. I don't think that that you care this much. And yet here it is, right here. And I have so many pictures in your Word that would say opposite of what I experience. And I know that many of us probably feel that. Help us to to experience and receive your covenant love for us, not in a way that pushes us away and freaks us out, but in a way that draws our hearts. Lord, we need freedom from our cultural gods, our cultural idols, and we just confess as a community, I confess on behalf of us, that they, gra- they get inside of our hearts, they're insidious, they land in our, in our affections, in our, the places where we find security. Um, it's just so all, cons- all around us, and we need you to step into our lives and bring freedom. Lord, be thou my vision, not be all else. These things we sing, Lord, we need your spirit to just flood our hearts and free us that those things might become a reality. So we just offer our, our, our wayward, our half-hearted hearts, our desires to be with you in the ways that our flesh gets in the way. Lord, thank you that you have your unconditional love for us, that your mercy is bigger than our sin. I pray that we might experience it even as we come to the tables. In Jesus' name, amen.